0: all right welcome listeners to another roots of the money tree podcast i know we've had a little bit of a hiatus um so we're gonna enter 2023 strong uh with a really great speaker i'm colby gilmore uh not the great speaker i've got my good friend uh the houston how-to ryan anderson howdy and we've got um honestly, one of the the greatest mentors I've had over life, a good friend of mine, um, probably the best connection I've made since living in Tennessee. I've got Ron Henry joining us today to share a bit. Welcome, Ron.
1: My pleasure. My pleasure.
0: And uh, I'll I'll get into really setting high expectations for you for our listeners. But um, before getting into that, I just wanted to to recap listeners that um, kind of the point of this podcast, Roots of the Money Tree, is this concept of Hey, how do we kind of think through our root system? Which is, what are kind of these? What's going on underneath the the ground? What's going on with our roots? And those are really what we call our, our core convictions—the things that hold us and root us right what we want to do. And when we breach the soil, which would be our beliefs, and even the fruit of our tree, which would be our actions and our behaviors. So we want to make sure that our our roots—they're going to be there no matter what. We want to make sure they're fed with good nutrients from the soil, and that's why we bring in people of great uh, wisdom out there that could help maybe in your own life as you listen be some of that nutrients in your soil. So that's why we brought on Ron here. Um, Ron is perhaps the most connected person I've ever met. He uh, works right now as a director at Marketplace Chaplains. Um, He's got a fun story that we'll go through of just his life of going from the entertainment industry or music industry into recruiting and then into chaplaincy. If you need to know anything on the movement of the church or ministries out there, he's the guy that has a connection somewhere or has a story to tell. So Ron, thanks again for joining
1: us. My pleasure. I, I guess I've, I've been around long enough to meet enough people that have some value. So,
0: <laughs> Well, when some people ride off into the sunset and retire uh, or go down to Florida to the villages, you're, you're not doing that. You're still paving the trail and as busy as ever, I'm sure.
1: Well, that's, I mean, the the interesting how uh, I find the things that as you go through your journey of life, um, as you gain more years, you're able to look back and see how God connects the dots. You always wonder why you had this experience or why you had this situation or why you lived into it. But as as you journey along, you begin to see how this is all shaping who you are. And I had, I didn't get saved, you know, except to Jesus, my savior until I was, you know, early 40s. And then all of a sudden, I got on an accelerated path that uh, I had a roller coaster, as I say, that I I was just holding on for dear life. But all of a sudden, God was bringing these people into my life, uh, you know, which many people icons of people. But there was one gentleman that I met in uh, 1996, who at the time served on 20 different boards of directors. you know, if it wasn't for him, there wouldn't be a focus on the family. He built hmm. world vision into what it was. I mean, I'm truly a man of God behind, behind the scenes. He's mentoring the president of Zusa Pacific. I mean, he was all over. He sat on the small little ministry that I was invited on. And here I was sort of a new believer. And, and, and I'm chairman. Uh, the, the, the founder of the ministry said, you're going to be chairman. I go, me? I felt like a little kid. You know, what do I need <laughs> to do? And, and, and the vice chairman was this particular gentleman. But he, he, he read into my life, Colby and Ryan, the idea of how to, what means, how to finish strong. Really truly, he, he completed writing his 52nd book, which was one of the best books on leadership at age 90. Wow! And the last three books he wrote, he had to dictate because he had immaculate generation. He couldn't see clearly. And so his goal was, I'm going to make it till 90 and finish this book because he lost the love of his wife. Hmm. He passed away two years, three years or earlier. They'd been married 60 years. And his story, I mean, you think about this truly man of God, but his story was so real. And if I may just aside, he, he actually went to Kentucky Wesleyan on a basketball scholarship. You know, sort of, he said, sort of a heathen believer. And then he saw this hot girl and he really wanted to date. And she said, I'll only date you if you go to church with me. And that started the journey uh, of his faith. So, you know, it's very real, very practical. But he, he, he breathed into my life about the power and then the opportunity. I mean, and then, you know, people like John Eldridge has written about everyone else. Is the most powerful season of your life is this season. This, what It would be when you're over 60 and going on. Because you're having God gives you this opportunity to take all you learn, all you've engaged, and feed mm-hmm. it into other people. I mean, it's it's so rewarding.
2: What do you think the main challenge is? Why people don't do that? Why why is that not typical to finish strong? Well,
1: I I just think that it's it's the it's the typical battle of uh, of understanding. You know, are you are you of the world or in the world? And um, and and the idea that we have, uh, you know, literally you grow up with your whole life being brainwashed. Hmm. You know, the, the 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 culture in our society and the world brainwashes you, and they and they give you all these uh, things that what you think is the right thing. I mean, look at the concept of retirement. Look at the root of when the retirement concept even developed. Look back at the history of when that started. And how that just totally forces us now to start making our God the retirement money. I mean, think about this. How about, how many people, the whole concept, think about someone says, uh, you know, they work for a big corporation, then they retire. And I'm going, how do you retire as a person of faith? There's no, there's no retirement. If you accepted Jesus Christ at the cross, you work for him and he assigned you these different roles but the world has you think and you work in these big corporations and the big corporations become your god with a small g they're the ones that dictate what you do and what you don't do and they're the ones who they and plus the culture itself really messes up your whole brain relative finances you know the so-called american dream mm-hmm. what a crock that is <laughs> in terms of from a kingdom standpoint you know, I, through the years of like years in executive search, I remember working with so many people, and they climb that ladder of success, and they get to the top of the ladder, and they realize it's leaning against the wrong building. Mm-hmm. Then they look back down the ladder, and they see a failed marriage, kids they don't know, you know, all other you know things that are just destructive. They thought that was the goal, but mm-hmm. that's that starting in the fifties and the sixties, that's what everyone was promoting to do. Uh-huh. That's what all the policy was. That was the winner. And the sad part is the church, institutional church supported it. I mean, just another history. Look up the, the Lyndon Bain Johnson law, uh, uh, law of 1954. Right. When he instituted the concept of nonprofits, being able to make it a tax deduction, your property, and, and, you could, and if you, if you donate it to a nonprofit, you can make it a tax deduction off your income. That was to me, the principal point of destruction of the whole heart of the generosity movement. Mm -hmm. Because it wasn't giving out of sacrificial giving, it went to giving out of what I had available because I could make more money by making the giving here. So Mm -hmm. I could do something good and get a benefit myself financially. So, so I, I'm a big proponent of understanding why we are where we are, but a lot of it is the history going back.
2: That makes sense. Yeah,
0: you know, that's a good point, Ron. I remember, uh, I guess it was in 2020, the CARES Act came about and allowed people to you know, deduct 100% of what you gave away. And I remember sitting with a very generous couple that was giving away a very large amount of money because they wanted to be strategic and max that out. And the accountant came back and said, well, you know, since you're going to give so much of this to your donor advised fund, which we've talked about before, they said, you're not going to be able to deduct all that. And I remember the client being like, oh, well, then we shouldn't do that. And I sat there going and asking them, I said, your your goal was you wanted to give $10 million away in the next 10 years. And this was the, the property you had thought about. So would you do the gift even without the tax deduction? And they said, well, I don't think that's why it's stewardship, because we're just not going to use that that loss. And it was it was funny because I, I just sat there going, "Oh, so then why was why were we giving in the first place, right?" And then they did come back and you said, "You're right. You know, we do want to give this all. It's not the tax deduction. Yeah, the tax deduction helps us give more, but we have. But it was funny. The instant of what you said is culture does brainwash us. Where the first thing they thought was." If I'm not getting a, if I'm not getting anything out of it, why am I doing that? With then coming back to no, this is all God's in the first place. Um, well,
1: this ties into my whole uh, the the thing that I that that I live and die is is everyone has to check what is your deep rooted motivation for what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And having the laws are not bad or good. They don't have a bad or good. It's just how you engage with the law or the policy. Can have bad or good consequences so the fact that we have tax laws and certain guidelines of what you can and cannot deduct not to take advantage of that to me is poor stewardship all right so there's so there's a fine line there and that's but that's that's how the enemy gets assets so because it has a seeping over one way then then but what you did colby in that discussion what you shared my reading from that is you asked them to really check their heart what is your motivation? I mean, uh, you know, in terms of the, the giving side of thing, uh, for me, just to go back a little bit, because you, you mentioned we talked a little before this about, you know, the plan. It's really interesting, you know, early on, you know, what, what was my first money memory or something? And, and I don't look at it as money. I looked at what was my first business? And, and, and the reason I had the business, so I could have spending money. I mean, I grew up in a middle-class family, so I always had food on the table, but I didn't know any different. I didn't have five pairs of shoes. I had one pair of sneakers and one pair of nice shoes. And I had a couple pairs of shorts and whatever. But So I had, but I never, I was never motivated like, oh, I want that fancy car. Oh, I'd love to have this or that. For some reason, the environment that I grew up in, the parents I had, it was just a very solid thing. And they really taught responsibility, mm-hmm. you know, being responsible. In other words, I never got my dad. I was like, shouldn't do that. You know, if I did something wrong, he said, okay, what did you learn from? It? And there's consequences for your choices, but never berated me. He, I had to take ownership, but I mean, you'll, you'll crack this up. But my, my first, my first business, I was like seven, eight years old. And it was a summertime job on a beach, and they had, there were big, big shells there and small shells. And back then, in the later 50s, early 60s, everyone smoked.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: So I took the shells, glued some together, painted them, and sold them as ashtrays. And that was my <laughs> first first entrepreneurial <laughs> endeavor. You know, once again, taking advantage of the market, which was a lot of everyone smoked, and uh, and it, making it cute because of the beach area. So I had the look of it, and that, that was my first my first my uh, first job, so. Needless to say, I didn't build it into a large business, but <laughs> thankfully I didn't because smoking then came out of vogue. So a of I'm
2: sure you saw that coming. That's why you didn't make a full time business out of it. Yeah, right. I have that much insight. I just uh, <laughs> yeah. you know
1: that that's that's what I, <clears throat> when you look back and look at God's grace, you know, I mean, God's grace is just so insurmountable. Fortunately, he, you know, he 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 makes up that slack of what we don't know, but I do, I do always make statements when I work with people, and and even my own children, grandchildren, you know, our God is amazing, Uh, but when you do something that you, you know, you may have messed up the first time, and you do it again, that's, God's not going to bail you out the second time, that's called stupidity, you know, you didn't, you, you, it's like, you knew, you actually so-called knew better, but
0: hey, You know, Ron, something uh, interesting that you said there. I wanted to to dig a little deeper into. Um, You you grew up in a middle class family. You obviously had a you know heart for business early on, but that you didn't have that desire of kind of wanting to keep up with the Joneses, right? Or or seeking that that better instrument and and it's interesting um, because like my family just give a little background. Like we, we grew up on a farm, a construction family, all you know, family business, and we were always told you had to work really hard, and we did. But it's funny because there was a period of time before the great financial crisis where you know my family built a tennis court. We had a tennis court in our backyard. My grandpa had an wow. airplane that we flew in to go to jobs. Oh. So we had this little jet, um, turbo twin engine jet. And um, we got jet, or not jet skis. Uh, we got snowmobiles one year. And it's one of those things. I never thought that we were very wealthy. I never really thought about it. I remember telling the story to Christine. And Christine like, you were a rich kid. I, I never thought that way. I don't think any of my siblings or family members would ever th- think that we were some kind of rich family and obviously the recession really shook that up but from the perception we could have looked at and said wow yeah we deserve these jets we deserve nice cars we we could have lived a different lifestyle and I've seen especially as I to work with students that I can see people that are very materialistic with growing up in poverty The same that those that grows up up with trust funds and vice versa, those that are just very different. So what do you think, especially where where you grew up, how how is our perception so twisted that we could have very little and live materialistically or have very much and
1: not or vice versa? Well, I I think the root, it comes down to family. You know, Colby, you and I were blessed to have (laughs) parents that rule family was first and the family gathering was first. I'm sure you every night you had dinner with your family. I'm sure that it was yes. consistency in that area. Um, my dad in his, in his career, he worked for an aircraft company for 37 years and about 20 years into it, <clears throat> he got an opportunity would have forced to. So I grew up in Connecticut and it forced us to relocate to West Palm. It was a huge promotion. And <clears throat> he went to the family and we all said no. And they said, well, if you turn it down, that's going to be career suicide, but he chose the family. And that's a lesson learned about even myself, having getting married, now having children, grandchildren. It's not about me. It's about my family.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think those rooted issues, there's where the fundamentals come from. If you, it's not the amount of money you have. It's, your, it's, it's what you're depending upon. You know, it's what you're depending upon. I mean, and what your identity is. I mean, I remember my my son was, I, I think he I think growing up in elementary school and junior high, I think there wasn't one sport he did not play that one season. And and my work was such that I, because I had to search for him, I had flexibility, I helped assistant coach or scorekeeper or head coach every single of the sports. And I remember at the time I got so I got to high school when he was right around 16, 17, he noticed some of the guys. And they look, you know, driving brand new cars and so forth. And he goes, wow, I can't believe that, you know, Gary has, you know, his dad bought him a BMW, da, 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 da. And I, I turned to my, my son and I said, well, I could work another three or four hours a night and not, you know, and, and make more money and you can have that. And he goes, he looks at me and he goes, dad, that's the dumbest thing you've ever said. <laughs> because I was investing in my son. I was present. So, I, that to me has this, the, the impact on all aspects of what you just shared the question. Mm-hmm. And, and and even if you, and there, there's another thing to consider. I mean, there are a lot of broken families.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: What are we doing as men to help in, with the broken families or the young boy who's a single mom who doesn't have a father figure?
3: Mm-hmm or
1: or 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 the figure he has for father is so destroyed, I mean, yes, the you know, ultimate father because we're all sinners ourselves, but there's still a step in between you know this. I mean I, all I know is my parents grew up i mean i wasn't it wasn't it was a very waspy environment, so there wasn't a lot of emotion- i mean physically emotional love, showing of love, but there was a the presence of love and care
3: mm-hmm.
1: and consistency there, and I, that to me is what that's what that's my my perspective yeah that's ryan and i we've had a few podcasts on
0: just money and relationships of how do we actually cultivate strong financial intimacy in our marriages and and um i think i don't want to oversimplify it but i think that and you know ron you've attended some of our marriage events but is if we could just do this thing called marriage right right which would make a family thrive or at least well only survive but thrive how much different would culture be? How much different would our identities be of those that mm-hmm. are lost? How much different would society be as we're seeking things? If we just knew we grew up with a place of love and it's mm-hmm. unfortunate and sad for those that haven't had that. Um, I was blessed with that.
1: Right. Um, but it's, it's what I was with a colleague the other day and they were talking about it. You say that, well, you got to go back to the root history and, and how the destruction of the family and and all that kind of stuff to understand. And And my attitude is, Yes, I know that this history of things that were done. I mean, the, the, through the Depression and through all these social terms, the government took over trying to run families versus families their own and that caused da. That's okay. That's real. But what am I doing today? Mm. What am I doing based in Franklin, Tennessee doing today? Is there one person that I can invest
4: in? Is there one person I can walk with? If every one of us just did one person, I mean,
1: I mean, think of that, what a, you know, no, there's a name for movement, by the way, Colby, one, just one person. <laughs> there you go.
0: <laughs> that reminds me of, a, I heard a story Josh McDowell spoke um, at the commencement of Talbot Seminary years ago, and he got up and said, if it, for his one piece of advice, um, for his commencement address was never, ever quit pursuing your wife and your family. And he went on to say that two more times and then walked off stage. So that, that was, I, don't, I heard that uh, the president at the time um, said it was a good thing we're only paying him per word, but
1: uh, <laughs> now Ron- but you, you know, it, it's funny you bring up the term and I, I, I do want to share this but I think it's, 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 it's very important when we were talking, of, when you raised the point before about the, you know, how we shape the way we are because we've got these layers of deceit seat and, and so forth. And, and, I, and one of the things that's really I'm passionate about today that, I, that I've observed so often is the power of words and the fact that we use words that we don't define. In other words, we state a word. I mean, when you talk about, I mean, okay, when you talk about finances, what do you talk about? I mean, in other words, words become marginalized over time. And, and so the dialogue, if you're going to reach someone, you are got to choose words that don't create a preconceived disposition of impression of what they are. Like, for example, Coley, when you introduced me, you mentioned the fact that the music industry is recruiting and marketplace chaplains. That's a vocation that played out my design. Mm-hmm. And when you said that, Everybody who's listening to this podcast immediately had an impression, oh, he was in the music industry, he was in a recruiter, he was a marketplace chaplain. So you think, well, is he a musician? Is he a headhunter? Or is he a chaplain? None of the above. So when we, you know, so the idea when we're looking at, the power of the words, I think it's fear in a position of influence. Look at the choice of words. And because to me, the end game of everything we have in life is relationship. You know, Mm -hmm. from my standpoint, my understanding is we were created to have a loving relationship with God. That's why he created man. So everything comes back to that
4: fundamental thing. So is my action, is my action is allowing me to have a relationship
1: or not? Mm -hmm. So... Therefore, you know, so, you know, in my personal situation, I, I always say I'm in the people business. I'm my whole life. I've been in the people business, encouraging, equipping people of influence to maximize their potential. And I've had a vocations in music where I oversaw, you know, recording artists and songwriters. I've had a, a vocation in, in, in executive search where I help people position them from roles. And today with marketplace chaplains, I have a chance to work with business leaders, whether they're people of faith or not. To care for their employees. I mean, how, how much better could it get any better?
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: But the idea is the how you choose to identify yourself. And that gets back to the term positioning. So, mm-hmm.
0: well, yeah, you led right into this. I, I've heard you, um, well, countless times, but also on other podcasts and, and to leaders of companies talk about positioning or what you use as how do you you actually position yourself or use your platform for positioning can you tell us a little bit define that right define what you mean by that and then um well
1: um, i it, it, when it came to full realization of the positioning is you know first and foremost one of personal faith you know first and foremost how you first position vertically then you learn how to position yourself horizontally all right but what I found is that, is, in, is that the way the culture of the world goes, it has us seeking everything and we don't really know who we are. You know, how can we best benefit somebody? I have, I've asked hundreds of business professionals, can you articulate in two or three sentences your value proposition? How you can best benefit an organization or another individual? And I'm batting a thousand. Not one person was able to do that. Because their way of identifying the benefit, well, I'm going to be a good CFO. And I could, um, uh, I'm I'm good at putting teams together. And who are you?
4: I mean, we know in scripture, it's very clear, until we love ourselves, we're not going to be able to love our neighbor.
3: Mm -hmm.
4: So it starts with self.
1: So we don't know how to position ourselves in terms to, because here's God saying, Colby, Colby, I got this, I have an assignment for you. I'm over here. I'm in right field. And you think you're supposed to be playing, being catcher. So you're behind the plate you don't even see God out there doing it because you think you're designed to be a catcher. So the idea is, how do you, how did God functionally make us? And that is that to me is in other words, are you a out-of-the-box thinker? Are you a builder? Are you someone who's a stabilizing type person? You know, which, which role are you distinctly through? And, and whatever you are, you've been that your whole life. So if you look back at, look back at every engagement, whether it be an activity in college, sporting team, or, or jo- a role you have, when you, what were you functionally doing? What was the functional dynamics of that role when you were most passionate about it? When you got up in the morning and you couldn't wait to get engaged? I will guarantee you you two gentlemen here that if your role was something where you went into the office, sat in the same cubicle, did the same thing day in and day out, you would rather have your fingernails pulled out of your hand. (laughs) Yes. All right. But you know something beautiful? There are people who love that. They can do that. So once again, how do you put, You know, and and I think it's it's called upon each of us to understand what other people are in our marriage. That's a key fundamental. I mean, whether it be your love languages or whatever it is, but if I'm a strategically minded person thinking out of the box, all up here in uh, 5,000 feet, and I'm married to a woman who's very tactical, don't talk to her about 5,000 feet. She wants to talk about tactical.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: So positioning is really to receive the fullness of what God has is, starts with know thyself. And how you can benefit others, not how you can gain something for yourself.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: how you can serve others with what God is giving. because if you do that, he will he has promised.
4: <laughs> he has promised He will provide for you. Do you believe that? That's rich. that is good. Uh, it, it
0: makes me think of uh, matthew six thirty three right? There's just seek first, the kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. and, and I remember reading that uh as a younger well younger ish christian and going oh great yeah you know you just seek god and i'm going to get these things but it, it's right after all this discussion right of mm-hmm. storing up your treasures in the right place right but why why store them up in the right place because your heart's going to be wherever your treasure is right so if my treasure is that jet my heart is jet set on that jet um but going yeah if we do seek first the king if we just seek of knowing well what is the chief end of man to love god by enjoying him right Um, or to to love God and love others and I think unfortunately I don't think we always get that right especially as men right that we 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 bought into our positioning is I have to lead this thing I've got to I've got to
1: have my accomplishments getting a promotion is better it's good Mm -hmm. that's a better Mm -hmm. that's better or how about this one if you're a pastor you're actually doing more godly things Mm -hmm. than than the guy on the corner I mean I mean, think about it. It cracks me up. I mean, another, another word that you probably do an old, an old podcast on is is the different ways of looking at the term calling. And I think that's another overly abused word. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, but
4: if I think about obedience, if God, if God is going to direct my steps,
1: where is it? Where is it at all about me knowing wanting wanting to fulfill my calling? All right, you got obedience, which is you just you know. I mean, I came to my wife and I came to Tennessee after thirty-five years in Southern California, and we we left everything, including our grandchildren and everything else, came to a place where we were nobodies. We didn't know anybody, and no one knew us. The only thing we knew was Jesus. Mm. Where was that? Well, your calling is to go to... No, it wasn't my calling. It was, how can you, you know, so so sometimes the calling gets mixed up for tomorrow. The question is, we don't, we
4: live for the day. Can either of you tell me what's exactly gonna happen tomorrow? (laughs) I can't.
1: Ryan, you can, right? (laughs) <laughs> well, well, you maybe yeah, maybe you have the, the uh, Pentecostal background of prophetic gift that you can go through. He knows that, that the stock market's going to, go going to go up or down. He knows That's that. good. Yeah. <laughs> hey, listen, there are people that have some of those gifts, but I will, we, that's another subject. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, Ron, that, that's that's super rich. And I think that, that uh, leads to something important we had talked through is, is one you spent most of your life and well, actually you grew up in parts of uh, the East coast, but then ended up in Southern California and then it found your way into Tennessee. Can you tell me just a little bit, you know, quickly about that journey, your kind of journey through to different vocations, and then end with kind of the uniqueness of what you're seeing happen here in Middle Tennessee?
1: Okay, I'll try to do it quickly here. I mean, I grew up in the middle, you know, in outside Hartford, Connecticut, in a very stable home. Um, and uh, when I went to high school, I played sports, did all the right things, and you know, dated the co-captain of the cheerleaders and all that stuff. And I was good in math and science. So they said, hey, get an engineering degree. So I went to University of Rhode Island and uh, got into there. And by the time I was in my junior year, I looked around and it wasn't one of my friends in the College of Engineering. I said, what is this all about? And uh, meanwhile, I was very much in vain. At that time, I had been president of my class, president of the fraternity, captain of the tennis team, all that at, at a university level but I love people. And so people say, Hey, get an MBA. Oh, that's cool. Where do you do? Where do you get one of those? And you go, oh, you can go to Harvard, you can go to Columbia, you can go to, you know, different Wharton and so forth. Oh, that's kind of guys. I said, well, I don't want to go to Harvard. I mean, this is showing my deep thinking here. <laughs> you know, my dad was an engineer, so I'll be an engineer. Now I don't want to do it. And I get an MBA and then they say, Harvard, I don't want to go to Harvard. I don't want those Ivy leaguers. I I'm not, I'm a you know, I'm a down to earth kind of guy. I don't like those putting, you know, nickels in my loafers. And then, so they said, well, so I applied to Wharton and, um, meanwhile, my scores weren't that great, but I had great references. So they accepted me, but I had this little problem called the Vietnam war. And so they didn't give exemptions for grad school. Hmm. So I took a year. So I got a job teaching actually secondary education math, which was a I loved it, but for fifty-seven hundred dollars a year, I couldn't survive. <laughs> and but I got into the reserve, army reserves, and so I ended up getting my MBA from the Wharton School. And I made and I focused in in the marketing marketing side. But once again, something was missing there. I, I love people, and I and I candidly, I was sort of a goof off. I mean, I I, I don't want to dispel things here, but the, the fact is, when you're in an MBA program like Wharton, you can't flunk out unless you don't show up. So that's just the reality because they don't want the reputation to be blurred out that people flunk out. So mm-hmm. I, I understood that. So I, I think I was I was in a lower 20% of my class. But since I was very free and it, I mean, I got seven job offers. Everyone wanted to hire me and everything, but I still didn't know what I wanted to do. So I went up to New York City. Only thing I didn't want to do, I knew I wanted to work in New York City or LA. I wanted to be where the best of the best were located. hmm So many of my friends went to work for P&G and other big companies, so I got a job. So at age 25, I had an office on the 48th floor of RCA building in Rockefeller Center, looking at Central Park as a marketing consultant for a $4 billion corporation. And that program, marketing program, then led into consulting assignments at various divisions and subsidiaries. And I mean, I set up a marketing research department for the Hertz truck division, This and then I had an assignment at RCA Records. And I thought, this is kind of cool. And then they offered me a full-time job, middle management. You know, now I'm just turning 26, and I'm now in middle management, a $180 million record company that had, you know, Elvis Presley, John Denver, David Bowie, on and on and on. And I thought this was cool because I could get free tickets so I could help my social life. And then I didn't have to wear a suit every day. And it was great opportunity because th- th- there was no other people that had MBAs.
3: Hmm.
1: So... So the fashion work, within 18 months, I had four promotions, three of them because they, they fired my bosses. And then I met, went, took a trip to the West Coast and, I, and landed on a warm, balmy day in California. And it was like, wow, this is where I want to be.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, once again, I, I'm sharing the story, the naivete of decision-making, what it was. But now looking back, God's providential hand. So on that trip, I met an attorney who was from New York. And I said, boy, i love to work out here. And he said, I have a client. What do I know? Four months later, I arrived in Hollywood as general manager of a record company, a small record company that uh, after a year there, we signed an artist uh, that people may know of called Tom Petty um, and a few other people. And so I was mainstream. I mean, the irony was here I was mainstream leader. And if I mentioned I had an MBA, they thought that was the name of the band I played in in college. So the the business sophistication in the later 70s in the music industry was not that great. So, but whatever that happened, then I had management production, so I got involved. So, but it was interesting you near know, the the tenure of that, around that was the late 70s. God started knocking. Really started. I mean, I see it so visible now. Of course, being hard headed was there, but uh, I mean, I mean, I I believed in God, but I remember in December 28th, I was at, a, I went to a club in Orange County. One of my artists was performing there and I went with the date, I went backstage and it was this lady walking toward me and I heard an audible voice saying, she's the one. And if you ever ever saw an old movie called Heaven Can Wait with Warren Beatty and Julie Christie, my wife-to-be looked just like Julie Christie in that one. And that started my, fate. we got, we had our first date two weeks later, engaged five months later, and married three after that. And now we've married 43 years. So that's how it started. That's how I got to California back that age of 27 to run a record company, met my wife, and then when we were blessed with our first daughter, uh, it became clear to me I didn't I needed to move out. I was on the road 50% of the time. So once again, I the upbringing I had about the importance of family gave me the focus. I didn't want to be an absentee dad. So I went from managing rock and rollers, brain dead rock and rollers, to brain dead executives. You know, so it really didn't change. People are still people. are still messed up. They still need help and direction. So that's where I played out working with my people. Into, and but I, being a, a a guy who builds businesses, I had the opportunity to build a couple search firms, successful search firms in Orange County, during that thirty-year tenure. And then when I downsized the last one. That's when I had a relationship with this chief marketing officer at Marketplace Chaplains. and they they asked if I uh, if I could help them build their you know build their their market in the West Coast, and it was it's just a great season. So I'm on retainer today. I mean think you know think I think about Marketplace Chaplains, the fact that you can be in a situation where you're bringing you know love and care of Jesus into people's lives. And even even though the business owner may be an atheist, doesn't make any difference. They want to have their people cared for. All right, I think the, That's the avenue we have. So much as believers, we forget that we can make an impact. We don't have to stay in our little Christian communities.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and sorry to interrupt, but something you've shared with me that's,
0: I think, almost surprising to people is to know that there's actually chaplains in some of these Fortune 500 companies and that there's Bible studies being held frequently, right? Oh, yeah.
1: More today than ever before. Yes, it's, 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 uh, I mean, we serve companies, big companies like Intel, um, Cargill. We have about 30,000 employees, a lot of foster farms, a lot of big companies, as well as three person law firms. But the interesting thing, movement right now is it, there's not a pushback on faith in corporations, and a lot of it has to be that things swung so far against things. That they realize that if they're gonna that wait a minute, religious freedom and religious identity in big corporations actually helps the company. Mm-hmm. And Oz Guinness is gonna love it because there's, there's civil conversations going on. And they have clubs. They have clubs, you know, Christian club, Hindu club, Muslim club, Jewish club, and and you're, and they're funded by like your Google or you know, Oracle, Uber paypal so and they're so they're underwriting events so they can actually have something it was a great story about a girl from google since she had permission she put an internal on the internal email internal facebook they put is there any, are there any christians any christians that work here bing within like five minutes she says yes well turned out the guy was from south america his first name was christian uh Perez, Perez or something <laughs> you know, she goes no i'm talking about your beliefs but sort of sidebar but yeah it's that's the encouraging thing we're being invited in you know and and you know and uh, recent rulings where we can talk about our faith there's a great platforms out there today that uh, we're dealing now in the secondary school secondary and well primary and secondary school gateway to better education educating people what can be done I mean, do you realize in the state of California, it's mandated by law that you have to talk about Jesus in fifth grade?
4: The public schools, they have to talk about it. It's mandated. So, you, you know, there, there's, guess, there's yeah. an interesting
0: thing there from a, this would be a whole long podcast, but on um, the separation of a Constantinian Christian to, to today and High level. That's just kind of like often the church lived in the shadow of being a state religion was safe. Now we have a post-Christian society, which is almost a benefit, right? Because now you can actually we can if we really live as these peculiar people that are living differently. Now that we're not under this shadow of a hey, you know big brother's Christian, right? It's that hey now you can actually maybe actually get into places as as almost a minority, um mm-hmm. but with the chance of being living out peculiarly differently, right?
1: Well, and I think there's another area that, I, that we all have to look at really deeply. And when you, I heard a statistics the other day saying the number of professed Christians is numbers are coming down. But I profess that the church's remnant is, is actually going up. And the fact that we have a lot of people who, you know, it, I mean, it was a cultural awakening moving to uh, Middle Tennessee because, you know, the Bible Belt. And, and the churches on the corner are packed every Sunday. All right. But you don't see it played out on Monday. So they went through the checklist. And a lot of them still tithe too. This gets back to the giving. They did it. I tithe. I wouldn't say it's generous giving, but they gave. But it's good. I gave my 10%, so I'm good with God. And then I can go, then I can go tomorrow and cheat my clients out of money. But the, the, but the remnant, this is the exciting thing, especially it's evolving out of, the, out of your generation and the next generation who are seeking truth. It's so exciting. Because you're not putting up with the, the crap that my generation has thrown out there. It's like it's, our crap is so bad, it's so absurd that your generation is going, you got to be kidding me. This doesn't make any sense at all. Or it doesn't have any relevancy to what I think who God is and what my journey should be.
4: And that's where, to me, I think the challenge I, I look in terms of, even in the, in the area of generosity and giving, I think
1: I perceive a lot of the framework of how that is being messaged and how it's being implemented is, is, is probably doing more harm than good.
4: Because you said early on, it's a generous heart. What does that mean? And, and people literally are taking that means it's, it has only do with money. No, the generous heart is the whole being. It's your time, your talents, your, your, I mean, look,
1: I mean, and there's great icons out there who have demonstrated that. Well, they gave it all. all.
4: Has anyone ever done research on how much Mother Teresa gave financially? Then would you, but would you say she had a heart of generosity? So once again, is, is, what's the cost?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Oh, that
4: is always good that, that mm-hmm. we,
0: we do want to be generous, but it's always God just wants your heart, right? He wants the heart at the end of the day. That's why we have Zacchaeus giving away half of everything, and you know, and those that he he um defrauded, you have the widow giving away everything. You've got um, you know, uh, well, Jesus calling the rich young ruler and saying which I think that's the best representation You have the rich young ruler who's supposedly upheld all the the commandments, right? He says so. And yet Jesus looks at him with love saying, well, there's one thing holding you back. That's your possession. So give it all away. Um, Which is a funny one. I think I've said this before, but if he really was following all the commandments, like he said, he probably was tithing, right? He's probably doing all the old Testament, you know, tithes. And yet his heart wasn't in it.
1: Yeah. I, I i see i lean more on the story about ananias and that mm. than the deception mm. I, I mean i i lean more of that as seeing people today hey i gave all that what are you talking about you know hey don't worry about that situation but
0: that's interesting i think it's randy alcorn that mentions in, in that story that's the one time we hear of someone of, of generosity um or, or- someone giving um, out of, out of uh, a sale in the New Testament and literally they lie about it and get their lives are taken from them. That like, yeah. how powerful is that? Is a couple lying about giving, God just goes, boom, you're gone. Um, mm-hmm. And yet, you know, how much are we doing that personally ourselves?
1: Well, that's one of the things I really uh, respect about how you go about the, the work. It, it's the whole issue. It's not the... You know, it's not the financial advisor, meaning only dealing with money.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You embrace the holistic viewpoint of the person. And sometimes it's, you know, in mean, the money to me is a follow through, it's not the obvious. But I think it comes a lot to do with it a lot of it for individually. Do
4: you really believe that God owns it all? So the question is not how much you give, it's how much you keep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that we I don't think we believe he owns it all, and and to confirm that is listen to
1: people and how they talk. I own this, I own that, I got this. It's my company, you know, my plan. You might think, well, he's they're sort of
4: no, no, no. Clearly, what are they saying? Mm -hmm. What is this verbiage coming out of their heart in this way? Yeah. And once again, I'm not being critical. I'm being perceptive
1: to understand that there's a journey that people have to go through.
4: And, and it's understanding, you know, it's like, under, what is the culture of his church? Not the one on the corner, but the church of Jesus Christ.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the- it is a
1: culture, right? Go ahead, Ryan
2: yeah that's the power of words again. So just listening to those words really tells you what the heart is doing.
0: Well, Ron, this has been awesome. there there's so much here that we could unpack from like ten more podcasts. But I think you've kind of said it, but kind of closing out what what are is there anything else that you're most encouraged about that's going on right now in in this culture of of the Christian church? And would you also say, what do you think are the biggest barriers? And, and would it be just like you said, the fact that we just don't really believe God owns it all?
1: Well, I, I'm in my season. I'm probably more encouraged to where things are today than ever before in my life. Only because the enemy thinks the way I look at it, the enemy thinks they got a run of the middle. Everything's going well. So that to me always tells me that's great opportunity great opportunity but what I'm loving where I'm also but primarily I'm loving because I'm seeing the the net younger the younger generation which is your generation stamping up a leap in roles of influence that love Jesus love God's word and start right with God's word they're not getting caught up in politics they're not they're, they're expressing love for and being you know, non-judgmental, but loving on people the way Jesus loved on people, but then share truths with love. So I'm seeing a generation of these young men and women that are just hungry, and they're hungry to learn how to integrate life, to live a fully integrated life. The second point though is, I think it's critical to get into peer groups. You cannot do this journey alone. And depending what your peer group may be, and there are there are all different uh, marketplace ministry platforms out there, but find one group you get into, and 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 to me that group concept is a discipleship walk journey with some other people who are who are asking some of the same questions. You've got to do that. That's that's very very critical. So, you know that's that's the that's the concept I do. But but the last the warning is not a warning so much i think is just really wisdom that has that been driven into me is always check your own heart your own motivation and that of those who you're communicating with you know it, it may look wonderful on the surface but you dig deep mm-hmm. and i will t- and people say well how do you know how do you know
4: well i got this thing called the holy spirit yeah it's pretty good at discerning things mm-hmm. Well, I think that's
2: that's encouraging for me because I think that you we as a younger generation hear a lot of maybe our parents' generation saying, you know, this is the worst things I've ever been. Like if you look at our country and you look how things are. So, but I am also encouraged. And I think you really see the heart of a lot of people in our generation, just like you said, trying to integrate, trying to express love without judgment. And so it's encouraging for me to hear that you're encouraged because I am too. Oh, I, I'm pleased to hear that. So I'm going to say, this is,
1: as I say, this gets my energy going every day. So mm-hmm. my wife says, my wife said, well, even if you weren't getting paid what you're doing, um, you'd still probably do the same thing. And I said, sure. Why not? <laughs> I mean, I mean, like somehow God will provide, but, uh, but I think a lot of it, once again, there's a, there's a lot of lies out there. There's a lot of false truths that we have embraced. And I'm not saying I can tell you what 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 the better way is, but just we, we need to pause. That's, I mean, that's the value of prayer. That's mm-hmm. the value of being in a peer group because you're challenged in, in both, you know, and all that covered, of course, with, with the God's word.
2: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard it from well, my,
0: my pastor this weekend, Mike, where he mentioned, you, you keep hearing people saying the gospel is under attack, or it needs defense, or it's going away. And he goes, that's not true. It's not going anywhere. It's as so strong as ever. It's only our perception of it. I
1: mean, it, how could something go away if it's a living word? Mm. It's, not, it's not a book that you can just throw in the trash. I mean, it's a living word. I mean, there's no there's no competition. There's no parallel. There's nothing we have a living God how could it it's like didn't it I mean it's like the basic truth God is with you at all times Hmm. even when I didn't know who he was he was with me he loved me unconditionally all times just remind yourself of that
3: Mm
2: -hmm. yeah that's so true well I've been really encouraged this whole time and thank you so much for sharing your wisdom thanks for your example of finishing strong um, I think this is going to be really impactful to me and to all our listeners. So, I just want to say thank you so much for your time, Ron. We really appreciate oh. you. And we just ask God's blessing on you as you go forward. Well, I thank you so much for the opportunity to share.
1: And uh, I still have a lot of years left. So,
2: that's right. Finish strong. God bless.
3: All right. Take care.